I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Murder in Oregon is a production of iHeartRadio. I met Tim at a video arcade, and I thought he was the cutest most charming guy that hung out there and so pretty much right away he asked me out Liz Godlove was Tim Natividad's girlfriend and mother of their son they met while they were both in high school and quickly spiraled into an intensely passionate dysfunctional and dangerous relationship one that would end in a violent death I'm Lauren Bright Pacheco, and this is Murder in Oregon. In our last episode, we learned that Tim Natividad, also known as Rooster, was thought by many to be a likely suspect in the murder of Michael Frankie. We also learned of his drug addiction, propensity for violence, and the twisted relationship he had with Carrie Rothschild, one in which he acted as a kind of broken guardian, rescuing her from the drug-fueled nightmare that was her mother's house and introducing her to a whole new nightmare of drug dealing, dependence, and murder. During that entire time, Natividad was also in a relationship with Liz Godlove, who started to see the evil behind his good looks almost immediately. Well, like I said, I thought he was handsome. And, you know, pretty much our first date, though, he showed a lot of jealousy. We double dated that night. And he was super jealous of his own brother. His own brother was talking to me a little bit too much. And that pissed him off. He started driving crazy in the car and yelling at his brother. Yeah, this is my date. You have yours back there. And it it really scared me. But not enough to deny his attraction. Photos of Natividad show a strikingly handsome young man with dark hair and dark eyes. 
didn't scare me away because Tim, he always came over and called and he was just like all over me. And he was so nice in the beginning. You know, he had the excuses about his stupid brother trying to pick up on his dates all the time. And, you know, so put that to bed. Just 16 and caught up in a crush, Liz ignored red flags and refused to see the patterns Natividad demonstrated from the beginning as abusive, something that became much more evident during the course of their relationship. Yeah, I was young and dumb, honestly. The jealousy Tim displayed on their first date continued, and he quickly became possessive, too. Young and inexperienced, Liz mistook that intensity for love. And when I would try to break up with him, he wouldn't have it. No, he would not have it at all. I tried a few times and he would stab himself, cut his wrists with razors. He would do all that in front of me. And then of course he tells me not to tell anyone. But a lot of times my sister was there, he'd go to the bathroom and start cutting his wrists. Or I was at his mom and dad's house. He was in his bedroom cutting his wrists. He came to my work one evening, and I noticed him in the lunchroom in the middle of the night. It was really crowded, and I noticed him watching me. And I went, oh, my God. And he goes, you get over here, you get downstairs now. So I go flying downstairs after him. We get in his car, and he pulls out a big knife and just starts hacking at himself and blood squirting everywhere, saying he's gonna kill me, just like that, stabbing himself. So I get out of the car, run in and get help. Police come, took him to the the state hospital for the night, then he got out the next day. So that's how I lived with him. That's how it was. It was very scary and aggressive. But Natividad's behavior wasn't just triggered by their relationship. His brother said that when they grew up in California, Early on, he was diagnosed schizophrenic. I don't know if that's true. I have no clue, but... So the drugs could have been... I think the drugs did it. This was a similar pattern to what Carrie Rothschild experienced with Tim. His drug use led to Liz's drug use at a very young age, and Liz says it was spurred on by Tim's own mother. His mom had turned us on to Crosstop's speed... Early on, like, I think we were 17 then. They're a little tiny pill that was like meth. It kept you up for hours and hours and hours. Everybody was using them back then. I asked Liz about Tim's upbringing to gleam insight into his life and how he wound up in Oregon. Aside from drug use, violent crime seemed to be part of his family legacy. He did have his mom and dad, uh, six brothers and sisters. His dad worked two jobs to support the family. The mother had a boyfriend all the time on the side, which disgusted and angered Tim. He didn't like it, of course. His mom got into some serious trouble in California, and Tim didn't like that. They had to move to Salem, Oregon for her protection. She was in the witness protection program. Evidently, she had delivered the money for the hit, so she did some prison time for that. That's why they came to Oregon. few years into their violent and dysfunctional relationship, Liz found herself pregnant. How did he react to that? 
Oh, he was happy. He was fine with that. I was in shock. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. He wanted to eventually have another child with me. Her shock stemmed from the fact she didn't think it was possible in the first place. He said there's no way, shape, or form he could ever have children. Never. Tim said he was sterile. He was born with his intestines outside his stomach. And he said that had messed up his system for life, that he was tested and there's no way he could have children. So he was happy when, when I got pregnant. And clearly Anthony is his because I don't cheat on people and Anthony looks a lot like his dad. Was Natividad faithful? No way, no, heck no. I learned later that he had a lot of girlfriends. I didn't know that. See, I was at home taking care of the baby, being a good girl while he was out selling drugs or whatever he was doing. I had no idea he had all the girlfriends. After their son was born, Tim's behavior continued to downward spiral. Liz's sister, Becky, was married to Vince Taylor, one of Tim's childhood friends, who we spoke to in a previous episode. He was also a fellow member of the Kaiser Mafia, the drug-dealing gang based in a nearby suburb of Salem. We lived right next door to each other. I lived above and they lived below. He wasn't a quiet person. Everything was just going to hell after a while, you know? And then... uh, You would start seeing Liz maybe had a bruise on her face or something like that, you know? At the time, Vince was living with Liz's sister, Becky. Tim wouldn't allow Becky to come to my house. We lived in the same complex, and he wouldn't allow me up there to visit her. He just kept my family away from me. It was just odd. If he'd leave and I needed food in the house, I would sneak to the store as fast as I could. Got caught once. I was pulling in, and he, he pulled in at the same time. He was screaming at me, and and it scared me. So I grabbed Anthony and started running toward my sister's house, and he took a big set of keys and threw it so hard and nailed me hard with the keys, with my son in my arms. I was just like, son of a bitch. And, yeah, I think we called the police that night, I believe. We always called the police. Because we went upstairs and locked the door and put furniture under the doorknob, and, and I wouldn't come out. Eventually, things got so bad that Liz, her sister, and Vince made the decision to flee the state with her small son. Here's Vince. He'd have killed her. I guarantee it. You know, he's not messing around. He was that far gone in his mind, you know? He thought everybody was a cop or trying to get him or trying to, what's it, you know, questioning me. I go, what the hell are you doing, you know? I mean, things are weird. He wants to pat you down, see if you got a mic on you or anything like that. He was just... He was gone. Tim got extremely dangerous. We felt he was really dangerous, holding knives to my throat, and choking me out, and like, the police weren't really, there's nothing they could do. I filed restraining orders. Tim would get locked up for the day and get out. It would be worse. So I, I couldn't trust the restraining orders anymore. I called Tim's probation officer, and I called the Women's Crisis Center. They all said, if you can, leave the state. So Vince and Becky said, let's go. Let's get the heck out of here. Where'd you go? We went to Colorado, where we were scared to death to be there, looking for work there, still afraid of Tim. Everyone was supposed to be quiet and not tell Tim where I was. 
Well, one of my friends said Tim went to my last place of employment and threatened her with a gun out on the front porch and said, tell me where she's at, and she did. So then my phone call was, Tim's coming. He's coming to get you. We were so freaking scared. I may giggle today, and it's just out of nerves and frustration. It, it just, nothing was working. I didn't know what to do. And Liz wasn't Natividad's only target. Tim was threatening to kill me, my family, Vince. I mean, it was getting really, really scary and really bad. And he said he had killed a man and watched him die. Just all the drugs and guns and his behavior. It was time for us to go. We had to go. We were scared for our lives. Very, very scared. Scared for her life and trapped by her fear he'd harm her family, Liz returned to Tim. Natividad's behavior remained erratic, but it was after the time period of the Frankie murder that things really hit a breaking point. He was really super paranoid, angry, sad, mad, a lot of crying and shaking and not letting me out of his sight, not letting me have family over, keeping the blinds shut and saying, don't let anybody in, do not answer the door. And if I'm here, I'm not here. He wanted to move to Bend and buy a house. In those two weeks, he's telling me all this. He wanted to go to Hawaii. So he had all these big plans right away. Oh my God, he was packing in the guns. He was bringing guns in the house, a lot of them. Machine guns, pistols. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make Mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, My name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. 
thought they were going to kill me. So I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Jay Boutwell, a former detective for the Marion County Sheriff's Department, remembers responding to a call during that time. I was on the road in a radio car, and I was assigned to make contact with my beer's apartment outside off of Lancaster, but it was ended up being the girlfriend of Natividad also known as Rooster, street name. And I met her downstairs, and she told me that all four of her tires were slashed, and I'm looking at this, and I'm thinking, man, alive, you know, that's a pretty good knife to cut through sidewalls of four tires. And there's no blood, so he didn't cut himself or any of that kind of stuff. No evidence around the ground. It's just like they walk up and stuff it in, so it's like a one-pope job. And then she tells me the thing that threw me, she says, I think Natividad did did what? Slash retired. That's what she told me. She said, I think he did that. And she says, because we've been fighting a lot. And then she goes on a little further to tell me he's got a stolen 45 automatic in apartments right now. And so I said, well, is there a way I can get it? And she says, no, because it would burn me. And it would have. He'd have probably killed her. So I backed off on it and hoped that maybe I could find something off the street to maybe do a warrant to get in there and take it. And that's before we knew about Natividad having anything to do with any any suspicions of Frankie. In fact, I think it was even, it was just a few days after Frankie was murdered, if I'm correct. By this point, Tim's abuse was physical, verbal, and extremely effective. I felt worthless. Tim would tell Anthony, your mother is a bitch. Your mother is no good. Your mother's going to heaven soon. These types of things he would say to my son, his son. And when you have a violent drug addict in front of you, telling you and showing you, you believe it. You believe it with every ounce of anything you have in you. Things deteriorated to the point where Liz's sister came to check on her, waiting until Tim wasn't at home and decided to take Anthony, fearing for his safety. And I opened the door, I saw it was her, and I let her in. And she saw the drugs and the guns and the knives and the danger and took Anthony from me. And she said, you're not getting him back. No way. And I understood. I understood it. 
But Tim did not and responded about as well as you might expect. So she had him for two weeks and I was getting a lot of pressure from Tim too. He needed to have a son. He was gonna kill me, take Anthony to California and hide him underground. Nobody would ever find him again. And he said, and if he had to, he would kill my sister Karen and her husband to go get Anthony. You know, I, I did give in. I could tell that my soul was just like, oh, I wanted to be done forever. I couldn't do it anymore. But I got a burst of energy and wanted to protect my family. So I ran and grabbed the gun off the bed and was headed out the door, headed out my front door, which had a bunch of locks on it. And I couldn't get it unlocked. I was terrified. I knew he was going to kill me and grab that damn gun. The incessant violence, the abuse, and threats against her family and her son finally pushed Liz over the edge. And when I heard him come up behind me, I turned. We said, Liz. But I'll tell you, I snapped. It was so weird because I didn't care anymore. I was ready. I told God, you know, I'm ready. He's going to kill me. I'm ready. You know, just please, please, please let my sister Karen be the best mom to Anthony. You know, I was saying my prayers. And I felt dead. I just felt like so hollow, worthless. It's over, over, over. And I couldn't tell you what snapped, how I snapped. I couldn't tell you. I remember picturing how he was going to shoot everybody at my sister's and then take my little guy who's going to be scared to death on a shootout. He said he would kill any cop that follows him to California. It was, oh, hell no. And so I turned and just shot at a bunch. And I can't believe it, to be honest with you. I can't believe it happened. I can't believe I didn't die. I actually shot him. And two weeks after Michael Frankie's murder, Tim Natividad was dead. At Liz's trial, her attorney submitted multiple records of domestic abuse into evidence, and several of the cops who arrested Tim during those disturbances showed up to testify. Also on the stand was Liz's neighbor, who heard the sounds of Tim's violent and abusive behavior firsthand. Oh, my neighbor next door to us, I'd never met her in my life, listened to it all night and all morning. So she was there, which was a shock to me. I had no idea. She was on the stand and said, I heard him clearly beat her that night and tell her he was going to kill her and kill her family. I heard the gunshots. I heard it all. Before the trial, Liz spent three months in jail. But compared to the hell she'd been trapped in, it was almost an escape. Ultimately, I was acquitted. Thank God. It just all came together. I talked to myself. I looked at the jury and I said, you know, my attorney's going to help tell the story. This is how I lived. This is my proof, the restraining orders, the police officers, my friends and family, Women Crisis Center. I mean, I did everything I could. Thank God I was acquitted. Oh, my God. Thank God I remember that day. I was so free. But I did still cry for a year because Tim had to die over all this. I cried for a year. Although I had my son and I wanted to be stable and I tried to, you know, be strong and stable for him. I had to get it out of my system. And I went to my priest and confessed that 
I shot and killed Tim to save my life. And he said that God forgives me. So that felt really good. I ran into several of Tim's family members after this, and they hugged me tight and told me that they understood. Timmy had some anger issues and drug problems. So they didn't hate me. But after Tim's death, pieces that connected his timeline to Frankie's killing began to fall into place for Liz, starting with a large sum of money he'd supposedly come into soon after Frankie's murder, which meshes with an earlier story from Greg Johnson that Natividad had received a payoff after Frankie's death. He didn't tell me where the money came from, but he did come into money. We later found out that he hid it in the fan of the bathroom the apartment where Tim died. There was a story that Tim's brother got $40,000 out of the bathroom vent of Tim's money. And I didn't know if it was a rumor. That incident would have happened while Liz was in prison awaiting trial. I didn't know. And my sister Karen is the one that cleaned my apartment out when I went to jail. And Karen goes, it's so weird, Liz. The apartment manager came in and was yelling at me for taking apart the bathroom vent. And I said, I didn't do it. You know, you leave me alone. I'm not taking the apartment apart. I'm getting Liz's things out of here. I'm like, oh my God. That large sum, along with Tim's taunts about having killed a man, continued to haunt Liz. We really wanted to figure out who Tim killed. He said he had killed someone. I believe it was at my attorney's office when we realized there were two people that had died and and Michael Frankie was one of them. I remember vaguely seen it on the news a whole bunch. You know, the the higher-up was murdered, and you see the police tape. You know, I didn't pay a whole lot of attention to it. But then, something happened that did catch Liz's attention. The release of the sketch known as the man in the pinstripe suit. And then the composite drawing that came out in the newspaper and on the news. To me and my, my sister Karen, it looked like Tim. We were shocked and said, oh my God, it looks like Tim. Interestingly enough, as we've touched upon earlier, that sketch barely made it into the paper. Well, I was calling around trying to get the picture that I heard the state police were circulating among corrections employees, trying to figure out who this man in the pinstripe suit was. You know, why wouldn't they release it to the press if it was of interest to them? The state police wouldn't release it. I called Dale Penn and he refused to. He said, no. I said, why? And he said, because it's not any good. This is not very good. Did he elaborate on what he meant by not good? No, uh, not to me. I personally didn't care whether it was good or bad. I wanted to get it, so I kept calling and finally got a copy from Binkta. When you first saw that sketch, what were your thoughts? I said, Wow, what a great drawing. (laughs) It was really good. And in in fact, it had been done by Joyce Boylan, who was one of the top three police artists in the country. It was an excellent sketch. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. 
In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian Cocktail Maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make Mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way. Knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, My name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Kevin was back in Florida, trying to pursue his brother's case with long-distance phone calls, which in those days meant racking up thousands of dollars in phone bills. He'd been told by Governor Goldschmidt to direct his questions to Dale Penn, the district attorney assigned to Michael's case. But Penn and Kevin didn't exactly get along. He was a sniveling, mealy mouth, wouldn't answer a question directly when I say mealy mouth. And the first meeting that we had was with my brother and Binta and the governor at the governor's reception office outside of his official office. And I was requesting a copy of the autopsy report. And I addressed that request to Goldschmidt. And he said, he's the man to ask, pointing to Dale Penn. And Dale Penn goes on this mealy mouth, 
And I said, is that a no? And then he couldn't even say no, no. Kevin felt he was fighting an uphill battle with Penn from the beginning, especially over getting Mike's autopsy. He finally agreed to give me a copy of the autopsy report, and he sent it to me in Florida. And it was four pages that was probably 80% blacked out, redacted. And it basically said Mike Frankie described him and that he died stab wound. Everything else blacked out. It wasn't just a middle finger. It was a smirking while a kick you in the ribs. Here you go, sucker. I guess, you know, his thinking is, I'm 3,200 miles away, what am I going to do? But Kevin and his older brother, Pat, refused to settle for the redacted report. They wouldn't settle for anything less than the complete autopsy, even if they had to fight for it. Here's Phil. So they hired a lawyer in Salem, Steve Krasick, who's been with them all this time, to sue state officials to get an unredacted copy of the autopsy, which under law they were entitled to. Back to Kevin. We did finally get a a full copy of the autopsy report, but it was through having to sue the state of Oregon and all the individuals involved, including Dale Penn and the, the governor, Neil Goldschmidt. And we had subpoenaed them to bring them into court to justify withholding the autopsy report when it's in the Oregon state law. It's called the Brady Bill, that the members of the family are entitled to a full copy of the autopsy report and any other medical information. To have the district attorney and the head of the state both denying what's written into the law of the state of Oregon, into the Constitution, and to have them flaunt that, just the arrogance of those fucking bastards is what grips me to this day. How could they? How dare they? Just flaunting their authority. Kevin recalls the day they finally received the report. We were at Steve Krasick's office at 341 State Street, downtown Salem, Oregon, just a few blocks from the courthouse. And Steve had picked him up, I guess, from Dale Penn's office and brought it back to the office where Pat and I were waiting. I had flown in for the occasion. Here's Pat's take on getting the unredacted version. A year almost to the day I was up here and I got the full copy of the autopsy report. I took that to New York and sat with Dr. Michael Bodden, who became famous years later with the O.J. Simpson case. And he read the thing, he got his calculator out, and he told me that Mike probably didn't love more than about six minutes, that he was fully conscious for about two minutes and then was losing consciousness after two minutes. And Because of the severity of the wound, the nature of the wound, that he would not have survived even if he'd been in a hospital. That it was through and through, and it just destroyed the lower part of his heart. During the time the family was fighting for the autopsy, they were also getting numerous twisted and anonymous tips claiming that Mike had been mutilated or murdered by ritualistic torture. It was months before they finally confirmed that there had been no uh, ritual type. It was purely defensive wounds and attack wounds and no other signs of mutilation. But it took, what, shit, six months to get that. So you're living with these movies in your mind that are atrocious. 
the feed uh, fire that you don't want lit in the first place. So that was the first thing that I wanted out of the whole thing was to verify that Dale Penn's telling me the truth when he says there's no mutilation because Dale Penn had a tendency to lie and then to be able to identify the nature, number, and location of the wounds and how the entry wounds were made and what sort of an angle. And in part of the autopsy report, there isn't mention of what you see when you see the autopsy photos. And there's obviously a picture that shows that Mike was in a fight. He got a pretty good whack in the head. The photos were the worst because I knew Mike's brain sitting there running at a million miles an hour as he's bleeding out and knowing he's thinking of his family. And that's it. Sharing the unredacted autopsy and photos of Mike with their parents was heartbreaking for the brothers. I've never seen two people in more pain in my life. Hurt. I worry about my kids. That scares me. If I ever had to go through that, I'd probably put a bullet in my head. And then add in the insult that they were only shared with Mike's family under duress and with a threat. When they were given this unredacted copy, they were warned not to let it leak. If it leaked, they would be prosecuted. That was the atmosphere at the time. That's incredible. So Pat takes the autopsy back to Kansas City and shows it to the old man. And they look at it. They have questions. Since Dale Penn had assured them that they'd they'd run it by the FBI, the old man called someone he knew, uh, Clarence Kelly, former director of the FBI, who had also been chief of police in Kansas City, and asked him about it. And Kelly came back and said, no, they never talked to us. And that's when the old man's world sort of fell apart. He said, they've been lying to us. They've been lying to us. It was as if they did not only killed his son, but they'd sort of killed his faith in how things work, how, how the world works. And uh, he was crushed. So Dale Penn told Michael Frankie's father that he had run the autopsy past the FBI, and that never happened. That's what he found out, yeah. He apologized to me. He said, Dale Penn's been lying to me. He's been lying to us. And it crushed my dad that... Dad was a professional. He was the greatest generation. 30 years in the Army, a colonel, full bird colonel. He's a man that put his trust in God and country and could not believe. And I think he felt that I was being disrespectful when I was questioning authority. He was sad that I was right. Let's go back to revisit the resistance to releasing the sketch of the man in the pinstripe suit, which now, in light of the autopsy and FBI issue, seems more noteworthy. Why do you think you were met with resistance? That's another big puzzle here, but it's such a 
strange place for them to lie. I mean, sometimes you you have to figure out what's going on by the lies they tell, and that, that, that was definitely a lie on Penn's part. It's almost as if they were afraid that someone would see that sketch and recognize the person. Yeah, that's about the only thing you can conclude. Kevin agrees. When I bitched at him about not releasing the picture, I said, why won't you release it? He says, well, it looks... It just looks like a lot of people. (laughs) (laughs) No, it doesn't. That's the problem. And that was the problem. When it came out, I looked at it, and no, it doesn't look like a lot of people. It certainly eliminates a lot of people. And the picture that ran in Phil's column was horrible. It was like a a one-inch by two-inch facts from 30 years ago, which, you know, was like doing little pencil dots in the thing. So everybody that saw the column says, that looks like shit. But they were forced then to put out the real one. And once people, well, you've seen the real one. It looks like a photograph. And that's when Liz and her sister saw the drawing of the man in the pinstripe suit. I thought it looked like Tim Natividad. It did to me and my sister. Immediately. Immediately. The woman who had lived with Natividad believes he was the man in the pinstripe suit. And he dresses really nice sometimes. He loved to dress really nice. It was coming together for me. It just started coming together. Okay, Tim's claiming to have a lot of money. You know, he became so paranoid and violent, you know, worse than ever before. Um, Started connecting dots for myself. So Liz went to the police. It's hard to remember exactly, but I do recall frustration because I said, you guys, I think Tim killed Michael Frankie. I need you to look into it. Tim always carried a knife. Tim had a huge knife collection. Tim was violent. Tim told me he killed somebody, and I think it's Michael. Look at this composite drawing. And how did the police react to this bombshell? They laughed and said, you can't convict a dead man. There's nothing we can do here. That seems a pretty odd response from the police, particularly since it could have led to the truth. Here's Pat's take. The longer the light was on it, the more chance was that the whole thing was going to blow up in her face. So let's put it away. Quiet it down. Make it go away. And the easiest way to end the investigation into Michael Frankie's murder and make the whole thing go away? Find someone to pin the murder on. A patsy. On the next Murder in Oregon, an unlikely suspect is arrested. There's so many other folks that are probably, yeah, it just didn't make sense. And charged with the murder of Michael Frankie. Mike Kierens, a convict from the Idaho State Penitentiary, claims Frank Gable told him he killed Frankie during a car burglary. Blindsiding everyone, including Frank Gable. I walked into a complicated drug ring and really don't know how complicated it was until now. Murder in Oregon is hosted by Lauren Bright Pacheco and Phil Stanford. Executive producers are Noel Brown, Lauren Bright Pacheco, and Phil Stanford. Supervising producer and lead editor is Taylor Shacoin. Sound design by Tristan McNeil. Story editing by Matt Riddle. Written by Phil Stanford, Matt Riddle, and Lauren Bright Pacheco. 
Music written and performed by the Diamond Street Players and mixed by Taylor Shacoin, with music supervision by Noel Brown. Additional music by Tristan McNeil. Archival elements courtesy of KGW in Portland, Oregon, the station behind the podcast Urge to Kill. Murder in Oregon is a production of iHeartRadio. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.